Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything, in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. I often say to my beloved hermeneutic students that before we interpret or open the scriptures and come to interpret any given bit of them, the scriptures have in a very real sense already interpreted us. Who are we? We are born, we live, we do this, that and the other and then we die. But that is simply the outworking of a reality that the Bible has already defined and ordered. In the Bible's terms, we are in Adam, who was born, who lived, who did this, that and the other, and then who died. Because in the Bible's description of what it means to be a human being, when all is said and done, before there is Bob or Jane, before there is a Sydney Cider or a Melburnian, before there is a Maroons supporter or a Blues supporter, before there is husband and wife, before there is this man or that woman, or indeed any other label that we choose to describe ourselves, there is only Adam. And to the extent that we are born and we live and we do this, that or the other and we die, we are in the Bible's description of things simply living out the reality of being in him. But of course, the story of Adam is not the sum total of the Bible's description of what it means to be a human being. Because aside from Adam, there is also Christ. And to be a Christian is to cease to be defined, to be interpreted by the identity of Adam, and to begin to be defined and interpreted by the identity of Christ. If anyone is in Christ, says Paul, a new creation. For the old has gone and behold, the new has come. It's as radical and as decisive as that. No longer in Adam, henceforth in Christ. And that is the Bible's interpretation of those who surrender their lives to him. The old has gone and behold, the new has come. And yet in that little passage from Philippians that I just read out, Paul describes his new identity not so much as a moment, but a movement. Not that I have already obtained all this or already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. It's a movement a movement that begins with Christ, the Christ who has taken hold of him. And if you look back to verses 8 and 9, it also ends with Christ. And in between this movement, this movement of, there is this movement of straining and striving and like a long-distance runner crossing a landscape that, if nothing else, will embrace 
suffering and death, and then resurrection as it approaches its finishing line. So that if being in Adam is not simply a moment but a movement, a movement of life that gives way to death, likewise being in Christ, Paul says, is not simply a moment but a movement, a movement of suffering and death that gives way to resurrection life. It's a movement, a journey in other words, that is conformed to the very special and unique journey of Christ himself. See, Paul in this passage of Philippians is describing his own journey, charting out, as it were, the contours of his own race through life. And he, and he sets it forth as an example for us to follow, but it turns out that the path he traces is not foremost his own, but the path of Christ, the journey of Christ himself. And this morning, I'm not going to give you a line-by-line -line exposition of these verses, and I hope that doesn't mean I get chased out with a pitchfork at the end. <laughs> so much as to spend some time just reflecting on the simple fact that the Christian life and identity is this journey, this path, this movement, this movement of Christ himself. And when I come back later on in the term, in term two for a second instalment, um, we'll look more specifically at the particular shape of that journey, the way of death giving way to life. But today I just want us to reflect on the simple fact that as much as anything else, Jesus is a way. I am the way, he says, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, I'm not simply a set of doctrines or teachings, though I am that, he is the truth. I'm not simply the life giver, though I am that, he is the life. I am also, he says, a road, a path, a way. And if the end of that road is the Father, where he eventually goes when he ascends to sit at his right hand in all of his hev heavenly glory, the destination is only part of the way, the end of the way, if you like. And no less significant than that destination is the journey itself. And it's a journey that takes him from place to place to place. Eventually, of course, it leads him to Jerusalem where he will suffer and die. So three times in the Gospels, Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going somewhere. I'm going to a place where I will suffer and die. And that, of course, is Jerusalem. And that destination is always on his mind. So think, remember that uh, wedding in Cana when his mother comes and tells him that the, the wine is all gone. And Jesus says the strangest thing, you remember? Why do you involve me, woman? My hour has not yet come. As if to say, at the very moment that the party is fizzling out and the cup is running dry, as it were, all Jesus can think about is another moment, an hour to come when he will literally fizzle out. So our party can really begin when our cups overflow with his own life-giving blood. But however much that moment is on his mind, he says, woman, my hour has not yet come. And it takes a while for him to get to that moment, and sometimes it almost looks like he's deliberately stalling. In fact, he passes through Jerusalem a number of times throughout his ministry, and there are plenty of opportunities for him to be cornered, and yet 
Again and again, Jesus will just quietly slip through the conniving fingers of his foes. One point, the Pharisees even warned Jesus that Herod is after his head, and Jesus says, go tell that fox. I'll keep, out, keep on driving out demons and healing people today, tomorrow, and then on the third day I will reach my goal. As if, as if to say, all of this has been mapped out today, tomorrow, and the next day. To borrow from that first sermon of Peter, there is a deliberate plan. The cross, yes, but before that a journey, today, tomorrow, and the next day. And it's a journey that can be described, of course, in terms of him doing this, that, and the other. Tempted in the wilderness, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the kingdom, healing diseases, casting out demons. But in his terms, it's a journey he sums up above all as him doing his father's business. Why were you searching for me? He says as a 12-year-old boy to his anxious parents, finding him sitting there, sitting at the, uh, in the temple at the feet of the teachers. Didn't you know that literally I need to immerse myself in the things of my father? My food, he says on another occasion, is to do the will of my father and to finish his work. Or in the words of Psalm 40, which the writer of Hebrews puts onto the lips of Jesus, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Don't you find it striking the way Hebrews speaks of Jesus having to learn obedience through suffering? And that it is only in learning obedience that he is somehow made perfect. It's the language of refinement and purification through fire, of course, not the fire of judgment so much as the fire of the refiner's furnace, which after a time of fierce testing and intense reproof delivers something of glorious and gleaming beauty. And, and using this sort of language of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews is surely not intending to say that Jesus was somehow impure or alloyed with certain imperfections that somehow needed to be burnt off, as if Jesus had to undergo his own kind of penitential purgatory before he could be the perfect pioneer of our salvation. No, not at all. Again, using the words of Psalm 40 in, in Hebrews, Jesus speaks of his body having been prepared by his Father. And it's that body that is then offered once for all, but that body can't be reduced to a single moment. It's a body that was born, that grew, that was matured, that matured and then goes from place to place until eventually it is handed over. In other words, it's a body that is perfected only in its totality, salted, as it were, with the fire of testing and reproof, tempted in every way, we are told, so that the sacrificial offering of that body is whole and pure and perfect. And so we're not to think of that testing, of that suffering in which he learned obedience as something merely isolated to those most traumatic days and hours leading up to and culminating in his crucifixion. Of course, it included at least this, perhaps most this, definitely most this. 
But just as Christ understood his entire bodily journey from cradle to cross, supremely in terms of obedience to his Father's will, so I think we need to understand not just particular moments, but the entirety of that journey as the refiner's forge, the crucible in which that obedience was perfected. To be so thoroughly, so completely aligned to the Father's will, and then to confront at every turn a world so thoroughly and completely alienated from that Father, groaning under the curse. And not only that, to know and embody the effects of all of this firsthand, to hunger, to grow thirsty and weary, to suffer the bodily corruption that drags us all to the grave. And then even more still, to encounter the full force of darkness firsthand, tormented by the evil one, desperately misunderstood and mistreated again and again and again, disowned, denied, betrayed, driven to a death he didn't deserve, a victim of the most scandalous injustice, and then to top that off, to know and to bear the full force of God's righteous indignation against it all. We simply cannot know or imagine what that was like. And we mustn't think that the sinlessness of Christ made this somehow easier to bear. One of sin's best tricks is to deceive us of its real gravity, isn't it? But at every turn, a righteous Christ faced it all with a thoroughly honest appraisal of its truly horrendous scope. Today, tomorrow, and the next day. A crucible of unimaginable suffering in which his obedience was gloriously perfected. It's language, of course, that is used in the Old Testament of Israel herself. Psalm 66 speaks of the way Israel was refined through a great journey of fire and water, forged by God, as it were, in the fires of Egypt, quenched in the waters of the Red Sea, and then led through the wilderness to a place of abundance. But it's interesting that when Israel then so appallingly stains her own purity by stumbling and falling again and again and again, God doesn't sort of just chuck her out and start again from scratch. No, he says through the prophet Hosea, you know what, you know what, we're going to do that journey all over again. I'm going to take you back down into Egypt, Hosea chapter 11, before drawing you out like a roaring lion and settling you in your homes once again. For out of Egypt I call my son, says the Lord. Words, of course, which the New Testament takes up and applies to the new newborn Jesus. As if to say that the journey of Israel's purification through fire and water is only properly perfected and embodied in the journey of Jesus himself. Not just in that moment as an infant when he escapes the fury of Herod and not just in the final gasps on the cross but in the totality of his own bodily life an exodus that gives way to a glorious and indestructible life. That is the way of Jesus, a way that is foreshadowed in the way of Israel, a way of purification and of 
been made perfect through fire and water. And to surrender your life to Jesus, therefore, is to have your life no longer defined by the way of Adam, but by the way of Jesus, this way, his journey, his movement. We are, as the book of Acts so frequently describes the earliest followers of Jesus, people of the way, not the way of Adam, a way of life that gives way to death, the way we are by nature but by grace defined now by the way of Christ, a way of death that gives way to life, a way of purification, a way of increasing conformity into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. Now, I want to say more about the specific shape of that way as Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 3 next time. But before closing, I just wanted us to get a little bit of a sense of the tremendous difference this ought to make to our understanding of what it means to be a Christian in the Christian life. See, I think it's very easy to think of our lives as a whole lot of little destinations and a whole lot of little journeys towards those destinations, isn't it? You know, I've just got to make it to 18 and then I'm an adult. I've just got to find Mr or Mrs Wright and then I'll be happy. Or if only I had children, then I'd find fulfilment. Or if only my children would leave, then I'd find fulfilment. (laughs) If I can only just get through college and out into ministry, then I'll be able to do something really useful for God. Or if I can just get through that marking. If I can just get through that marking. (laughs) If I can just make it to the holidays, to the long service leave to retirement, and then I might be able to catch my breath, and so on. But of course, these little destinations all too often prove to be elusive, don't they? Either because we arrive at them only to find another destination and then another journey about to begin, or that the thrill of the chase turns out to be a whole lot better than the thing we've chased, or that obstacles come and stop us in our tracks. For a Christian, there is only one journey and one destination. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him. That is our destination. But for now, we are walkers. Pilgrims, people of his way, the way of Jesus. And in this life, at least, we don't ever stop moving, something that Paul understood so clearly in that passage from Philippians that I read out. As my co-chaplain remarked, to suffer is merely to have lived long enough. But how is it that these obstacles, these setbacks that life throws at each one of us, one after another, How can we be sure that they won't eventually just sort of stop us in our tracks and grind us down? I think the sad reality of suicide and a society that's so desperately crying out for the legalisation of voluntary assisted dying is, if anything, only evidence of the fact that when life has done its worst and hurled at us virtually everything but the kitchen sink, for many, or perhaps most, the only hope that's left is the solitary, stationary, confinement of the grave itself. 
It was a, a, a beautiful morning, bright morning, when we were there with this couple, and one of them looked out the window after we'd been talking, admiring the view across the countryside, and he said, new every morning, new every morning. As it happens, only a week or so later, I was reading Lamentations chapter three, the chapter where, of course, those famous words appear. And it occurred to me, what a strange thing for the prophet to say, surrounded by the utter devastation of Israel and her God-forsaken city, wallowing in a pile of ruined hopes. To be hemmed in, ground down into the stationary, solitary confinement of the grave is to fall under the judgment of God. It is to live out the movement of Adam from life to death. And Jeremiah understood that. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. And he has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. For I say to myself in words that give voice to the cry of God's people in every age, whether at the end of their earthly sojourn like that elderly couple in Bathurst or only starting out, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is my portion, my destiny, my way. No longer the way of Adam, but the way of the Lord himself. And that makes all the difference in the world. For though weeping tarry through the night, in the morning cometh joy. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, for all that he bore for us, for our sake, an unimaginable load of suffering in obedience to your will for our sakes so that we might share in the glorious life that his resurrection life affirms. Father, we pray that this journey would shape our thoughts, our hearts, our attitudes, that we would keep moving with our eyes on that goal. Amen.